Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here. Jason Collier here. With Keith Townsend. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Keith and Jason. This is our annual year-end podcast where we discuss the year's technology trends and what to look forward to for the next year. So, Keith and Jason, what would you like to talk about? You know us. We can talk about anything for as long as uh, time you got. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's talk CXL because CXL seems to be a pretty hot topic, a flash memory subject sun, summit, and uh, it's been a hot topic at supercomputing and stuff like that. So what do we know about CXL, gents? So I'll let uh, – Jason is the more technical of the two of us, so I'll let Jason – talk about what it is technically and I'll, I'll chime in on what it means for kind of the data center at large. Yeah. The, well, so the big thing, big news around CXL was you needed a CPU to support CXL functionality. And, um, uh, with, uh, AMD's latest, uh, Genoa launch, uh, CXL is now in the CPUs. Um, so Compute Express Link really allows you, the, the first kind of iteration, this version one of it, really allows you to extend a memory footprint out of just what you think of as a standard DIMMs, where you can extend it with CXL Mem out into the PCI bus. So with that, I think we've started to see some pretty interesting things. I was at uh, Supercompute this year, and I saw a couple of interesting companies where they have, you know, in a PC, PCI slot, basically a PCI slot that's literally full of uh, DDR4 DEMs. Um, and I think one of the interesting areas uh, that, that this could be utilized more in the data center as well is it's extending the life of DDR4 because a lot of the newer CPUs, uh, Genoa, you know, uh, the Genoa CPU, which is the Zen 4 architecture at AMD, um, supports only DDR5. And if you've got a large investment in DDR4, uh, you will have the ability to utilize that DDR4 investment, uh, basically hung off a, a PCI bus. Now, clearly, it's not as fast, right? How can a CPU come out with only support for DDR5? Is it is it because of the speeds of the CPU are required to have that that sort of technology? That's a different discussion. It, it is. Well, honestly, you know, and, and then it gets into basically if you want to support, you know, more stuff, you're effectively increasing the die size. So, you know, you've got all of these, you know, what, what do you develop for, for the more next logic, generation? And yeah, so it's, I mean, literally it, it, it comes down to, you know, more, uh, you know, more die size, more power. Like every time you think of that, that little thing, oh, well, if we only had this support and then you're just like, and if you only had more power and more, uh, more, more die capacity. Maybe if you, you cut the you cores from like 256 to 254 or something like that. <laughs> right. It's, it's all kinds of weird stuff happens like that in, in, in the CPU world. So yeah, it's, uh, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this seeing some of those products and we saw a number of those at, uh, at supercompute of of companies that are kind of you know coming out of their uh their startup mode and then there are other places i think you can take the cxl uh as well and i'm, I'm sure we'll get into that at flash memory summit there was a lot of talk about uh putting you know flash storage behind the 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 dims in a cxl card that had effectively a storage hierarchy on a, on a psi card you know pci e card which is pretty bizarre when you think about it but you know it's 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 memory it's paging it's virtualizing and, and it's it's uh, supporting you know quick access to the right data i guess yeah so i did a sponsored the past year and it's timely i did a sponsored uh theme for micron where i 
talked about the data center of the future. And if you think about the data center of the future and what people want, cloud providers down to large enterprises or anyone consolidating and carving up compute, you want what HPE called what in 2015 memory driven compute. Uh, uh, basically a rack of gear with a pool of memory, NVMe, and storage. And you could compose that to be whatever you needed at the time. The whole structure thing, I got, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, if you, the hope is that CXL is the glue to all of that. Because of what Jason just said, I can put, you know, PCIe, uh, cart into a server and then load that with DIMMs that are either flash-based or DDR4, even DDR5, and then have memory controller, a memory controller that, uh, that you know, automatically distributes hot and cold storage, and that's not so cold in a PCIe card. Now, take that PCIe card and put it on a PCIe switch. And this get becomes really interesting. Maybe not the DDR4 speeds, but flash memory, flash memory on DIMMs on a PCIe bus is super interesting stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's there today, obviously, through SSDs and things of that nature and NVMe and all that stuff. But this takes it up on a whole nother level because now you're putting effectively almost memory bus types of bandwidth uh, in front of a uh, front of a, a, a gang of flash and stuff like that. So you could, you could create a effectively a storage hierarchy and that's just within a server. Now you've tried to put that out on a PCIe switch. It becomes a whole different game. It's like, no, yeah, there's, yeah, I've talked to, uh, actually I talked to Howard Marks about this at uh, VMware Explore uh, San Francisco. We did a, we did a, a, a jam session just on NAND flash, which we haven't talked about uh, on the end of your wrap up, the whole 200 layer plus NAND flash. And I asked him about the future of CXL. He poo-pooed it a little bit. He said, you know what, there's, you know, there's challenges when you're talking about sharing memory across systems uh, that CXL is hard to scale. And I'm hoping that uh, as we look into the new year that we see solutions for those types of problems. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah, you yeah. see it changing in in, in the uh, specification as well. I mean, they're going through, they're doing um, it's like version of the evaluation CXL three. Now? I mean, yeah. it's it's coming up. I mean, it's it's been out there for a while now, right? Right, and then um, but you're finally seeing it start to get into the hardware, and they've got the specification where you know it's it's you know moved out to basically having you know kind of the switching interconnect, and I think like you said, the tiering is is going to be a. Uh, key component of, of one of the things that you'll be able to do with it. When you think about it, I mean, you got a system with DDR5 in it, you know, that's going to be your closest, fastest, you know, when you, when you need those ultra low latency components, it's going to be great for that. But say you got another application where you just need a lot of big, slower memory. Um, guess what? Hanging out on the PCI bus. Are, are you going to get, you know, like, is there going to be, you know, more latency 
components to it. Yeah, so I mean, it's take, it takes longer to get out there. And literally to the point where if it's on the farthest PCI slot, it takes longer to get to the farthest PCI slot than the closest when you're talking about, you know, memory, uh, subsystems, memory copy, but not all applications need that. Um, and then the same thing, once you get into the switching, when you start talking about the composability piece is, you know, having the ability to, okay, well, it doesn't even necessarily have to be in this box, right? It's a, you know, a device connected via PCI switch and, um, there's going to be a lot of interesting, I, th I think, applications for it. Um, the question is, you know, when will mainstream applications pick it up? I mean, what we're going to see first is like the hyperscalers are going to pick this stuff up, right? They, they're they developing their own uh, software for their own clouds and, and very specific optimizations. I mean, if you look, yeah, you, you know, don't like think Amazon, SAP, HANA, and, and things like that will start taking advantage of this sort of stuff? Yeah, take it, I mean, they will, but, yeah. but they're going to be behind the, they'll be behind the hyperscaler curve. They're going to be the first uh, adopters, but I think that they'll be, they'll be close after it so you know just think if you had a aurora db if you're aws and you could have a aurora db with 64 terabytes of flash a memory even if it's even if it's lower latency than in memory uh, on bus it's still incredibly fast and that really changes application architectures you know the all of the fancy things you need to do in a database to make it super responsive you no longer have to do that when you can have as much you know, uh, uh, low, uh, high speed memory as, as you have a, a, you know, the size of your database, the limit of the, the size of Aurora DB is 64 terabytes. What, what do you think, Ray? Has it come a long way since, uh, how many, uh, you know, spinning disks uh, you gotta you uh, put behind your rate subsystem? Mainframes wanted shared memory back in the, in the nineties, quite frankly, yeah, maybe even good. the eighties, they were trying to put together a shared memory solution that, could talk yep. to multiple Z processors and all this stuff. And it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's still there. I mean, the need for more memory never goes away for some reason. I mean, especially now with, with the, with the database functionality that you can place in a, for an in-memory database. And, you know, Aurora is not yeah. the only one out there. There's plenty of others that, that, uh, play that space. Uh, well, so, just think if you can have a, a Oracle DB, you can just literally take your Oracle DB and not have to rewrite your software for an in-memory database. And you're just serving it up with, you know, what's essentially in-memory. There'll be some inefficiency there, but still, it's still an incredibly easy way to get performance out without re-architecting re -architecting the app. And if you start bringing in the composability thing in there, now you're now you're talking real interest because now you can carve up that 64 terabytes into you know 128 processors or something like that if you wanted to, and have each one have an application with you know half a gig or or multiple terabytes depending on what they need so, and stuff like that. Ray, don't feel too bad. We won't we won't necessarily be talking about how many spindles we need to get the oh, number of IOPS. Yeah, IOPS. We will be talking about how many DDR5 versus DDR4 modules or is, yeah, yeah. we're going to need. So the, the CXL space is 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 kind of opening up a whole new dimension to what can be done in the enterprise. And uh, and so you think the hyperscalers are going to be a big adopter of this sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you, if you just think about the scale of what they're trying to do and the move to... DDR5, you know, let's talk about not just the hyperscalers, but the data center. How is this packaged? Today, if I want uh, CXL and DDR5 and I want it packaged, I don't want to, you know, take a motherboard and do what hyperscalers do. I, you know, I, HPE, uh, the their 11th gen ProLiant server, 
I go out and buy that. I go buy CXL card and plop it in. The hyperscalers, they have a whole different layer of engineering and capability and what they do. I can see them doing, you know, the PCI, taking a bunch of uh, DDR4 that they have now and putting that into a PCIe uh, card with switch. With dims on it, stuff like that. I mean, is that how this would be played out? I mean, just take it all my. It can play out that way. I'm I'm not as I'm not as smart as Doctor Vogel to uh to uh Doctor Werner Vogel to uh know exactly how they would do it. I'm sure they're already playing around with it. Yo, when you stop and think about the sheer scale of hyperscalers, I guess we call them hyperscalers for a reason, right? I mean, it's one thing when you got you know a couple of dozen DDR4 dims like laying around and you know in a few racks. It's another thing when you got a couple hundred million of them laying around. So, I mean, you know, effectively with the new processors and stuff like that, it's, it's, uh, so hardware's got to be there. Now the operating system's got to support it. Now the, the functionality has to be available to you know to to the underlying drivers and stuff like that. Is all that in 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 place today i mean so you just mentioned the, the compute uh cpus are now coming online right yeah and it's it's all pretty much in uh um basically you know every, everybody's pretty much using linux kernel stuff and cxl has, has been in linux kernel for for quite a quite a while um and you know a lot of the hyperscalers they you know, they use their own custom distributions of, 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 you know, the, the major flavors, but they're, they're usually on uh, latest, greatest uh, kind of bleeding edge kernel stuff, depending on what the application they're wanting to run. So yeah, they've had the capability for a while. I guess my, you know, one of the questions I was thinking about is, you know, GPUs are sitting out there with 40, 80 gig going to 160 gigs types of memory per GPU. I mean, is something like this could support GPU processing as well, or you see that as the distinct game? Depends on the GPU, I guess. Yeah, though, and some of the conversations that I've had in with people thinking about putting GPUs behind CXL. So, uh, uh, what? I what? think that's. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Now you're putting you're putting compute behind outboard memory. I I, I don't understand this logic. You know, I I don't quite understand it either. But the, what we do know, and we can look at Apple as the example in the consumer space, being able to put uh, shared memory between the uh, GPU and general purpose CPU. We know that's standard practice today. So the low hanging fruit is that we know that we can, that CXL in theory should be able to provide shared memory to GPU. So what happened? We, and Ray, I think we talked about this uh, in an earlier podcast this year. What happens when I can give a GPU a terabyte of memory? Comes a different game, <laughs> and it is like that. That whole memory copy over the C uh, over the PCI bus is is like the number one latency factor you got for solving this problem. It's like getting the data from main memory into GPU memory, and if that can effectively be you know a shared address space, then that cuts the copy out. You can just do direct manipulation of it right on uh, right on that uh, that bus. And I think that's what one of the big drivers for the for CXL, like kind of kind of the 2.0 and 3.0 specs are. Yeah, well, Apple's got their own silicon for GPUs and for CPUs, so they can play the game with shared memory and stuff like that, and, and it all works fine. Well, they can do it at a they can do it at the at a limit. I was just reading articles the past couple of days that the uh, Pro is delayed because they can't figure out memory. They can only the the rumors are that they can only get it up to 192 and 384 gig of 
RAM. And that's nowhere near enough compared to the 1.5 terabytes they can put in the x86 based uh, systems. So again, they, they're running through the, the this, uh, what uh, Jason was talking about, the, the die problem. You can only put so much on a die before you run into the to physical die limits and Apple is is doing that for these higher end applications. And this is where CXL kind of solves that problem. Yeah. And that, that memory that's on there, I mean, they're, they're effectively basically just putting that, putting the memory on the die and, you know, we've, it's been in compute for a long time. It's typically called HBM high bandwidth, uh, basically high bandwidth memory that's uh, integrated into the CPU. And I know AMD's had like a few, uh, uh, CPUs that, that utilize it mainly for, yeah, you know, other three letter, three letter agency kind of things. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then that's how, that's how it works in the, uh, um, yep. Both the, uh, DPUs and then the, uh, um, I know the, the Pensando, uh, Nick, sp specifically the first one, it, it was basically, it was HBM that was, uh, on that, uh, the arm die that was in there. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then it's used a lot in, uh, in GPUs as well. Um, so it's, it's all tech that's been around for a while, but it's like, what, like how much power can you get to a socket? It's amazing when you dial, when you dig into it and you, you find out basically it's, it's all about what, what power specification you can get and how much, how much uh, power you can get into a single socket. I mean, that's one of the things when Genoa popped out, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it is considerably more power to, to, to the socket than what it was in, in the prior generation. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was all sorts of new technology coming out on the chips and stuff. Yeah, I think like it's something that. like four hundred, like it's like four hundred watt a socket, right? Yeah, so. yeah, it's almost like a GPU, only worse. Not quite. Oh, the funny, close. the funny one to really dial down into. You look at uh, Frontier, and I don't know if you guys seen any of those uh, racks that that were in uh, the supercomputer Frontier, and it's it's about it's a little bit wider than two racks, but that's effectively what is kind of one module. Um, but it's, I mean, it's something it's like, I think it's like four, like 400, you know, typically you think of a rack and if it's going to be in a data center, it's going to be, you know, like, like 50,000, you know, um, 50,000, uh, uh, KVA is, is, you know, typically what it's going to pull that thing's like 440,000. Right. So it's a, it's, it's a lot of power to be dissipated. And then, so then you start, what's, it's interesting too, is like you start doing this and you start looking at basically power, the power consumption, then basically the cooling, you know, requirements start to change. And that's why you're seeing a lot more liquid cooling, uh, technologies start to start to really come out because yeah, you want to put just a little bit more on that die. And now you got to think of more unique cooling strategies. So, Jason, you're getting off to the deep end here. Okay. Let's get know, back down to earth here. Okay. So we, we beat the, the CXL course. I think there's there's a you know a future of storage in there someplace, but we haven't quite touched on that. The other thing that's been of interest lately is that that the whole cloud native space is starting to uh, to come online. The ecosystem is starting to be uh, a major consideration. I you know we've always talked about Kubernetes and where is Kubernetes. I think the Kubernetes thing is pretty much settled settled the debate but uh where the ecosystem is is uh where the ecosystem needs are surrounding kubernetes and that sort of thing are a whole different discussion what do you guys think so i was at reinvent uh earlier this year uh at the beginning of the month and end of last month and the conversation from amazon directly was that hybrid cloud there's that's their cold word for multi-cloud 
is a thing because that's what customers are. That's where customers are and that's where customers will be. There is no uh, mass migration to the cloud specifically to AWS. Customers will have everything. And with that insight, so, you know, Ray, me and you have gotten to these debates, like how big is Kubernetes or how big will it be? Kubernetes in the cloud native ecosystem is big, no doubt, and it's fast growing, but it's still just a subset of everything that we have to do in enterprise IT because nothing ever goes away. So the question is, how do you build services and, and maintain your environment around that cloud native you know, concept? If the if the idea is to build applications faster, what the cloud native folks are running into is that enterprise IT is still enterprise IT. You still have to secure the data. You still have to have compliance. You still have scale uh, operations challenges. Uh, and Kubernetes is a is basically a bag of Lego. Uh, or not, I'm, I'm going to stop saying Kubernetes. The cloud native is a bag of Lego. There's, you know, pick your service mesh, pick your uh, message bus, pick your uh, Kubernetes distribution, pick your uh, uh, functions as a service, whether it's OpenFAS or Knative. The, the, the choices are boundless. And what enterprises are discovering is that they're, Kubernetes distributions or their cloud native activities are balanced. They get three different monitoring solutions, just like we have in traditional enterprise IT. Well, you look at, you know, like the landscape for cloud native anyway, it's like all of those components, when you, when you, compile them in, you look at the landscape.cncf.io, right? You find that there are what 1,193 different projects that cover uh, all of that stuff, right? And there's, you know, like you said, everything from your scheduling and orchestration, coordination and service discovery, remote procedure calls, like service proxies, service meshes, like all of this stuff, and you got to get it all to work together, right? And that's, uh, it's a challenge because it's like the landscape is huge. Yeah, CNF uh, platform, to, you know, chart and stuff like that is is uh, is extremely big, and the whole CI/CD part, you know, pipeline and all that stuff is coming online, and the oh, ML flow kinds of stuff are starting to come out of the woodwork. So it's it's getting pretty damn complex to to, to do any of this stuff. But uh, you know, enterprise has always had complexity to some extent, and you know, and and it's it's never gone away. Like you said, you know, the three monitoring solutions kind of been in the enterprise space for a long time. But I think it's a it's it's a it's almost a different order of magnitude, I guess, because of I don't know, because the open source or or what's going on, or just the activity that's going on in that space is just is just uh, multiplying all these all these challenges, uh, you know, tenfold. I would. Yeah, so you know, I'll sneak in the the concept of the controversy around SuperCloud. Oh God! Don't go there. Conversation. <laughs> you know, whether you like it or dislike it, it is not relevant it is that there's choice and this is something that in an enterprise we hadn't had the example that we didn't have uh the layer of choice even with linux like you had some choice but it basically boiled down to ubuntu uh red hat susi and you know kind of like the big three that was it, right? 
Yeah. Cloud native is nothing like that. It is, I have, I, I can choose against, I can choose between 10 different service meshes. I can choose between uh, service meshes as products based on, you know, I, 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 there's probably 20 companies out there with an Envoy service mesh. So, and there's no clear winner in any of that. So as consumers, as IT decision makers, what do you do? I mean, there's just, there's just, in the good old days, Cisco told me I shall buy this switch. And now in these days, it's kind of like, yeah, you have, you know, you you can, you can have any streaming service you want. Right. Right, right. And it all adds up to basically the same amount of cost you were spending before. So this is, you know, this has always been my negativity towards cloud native. Yes, it gives us tremendous power, but we're monkeys with a potato gun. Like this is not, this is not, this is not for us. Like for, and when I say us, I mean, most enterprises, we just want OpenShift, like, or we want Tanzu application platform we want a product that we can we want a product we can implement you can use those they exist to, to a large extent because of the the plethora of solutions in those spaces and and you know openshift's a fine example of this it kind of packages all that stuff for you you don't have to you don't have to make a lot more decisions with respect to that uh, yeah cloud cloud native is the it's like the menu of the cheesecake factory right uh, <laughs> it's got don't a little go bit there. of everything on there yeah <laughs> i think right you make a good point i think the problem is uh, I don't. If you 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 have you have to make it to a KubeCon one day. The the it goes against the grain of that original community to have a packaged product. Like the whole point of of the movement is that you don't need a Red Hat or you don't need a VMware, and you should be able to just take these bits and pieces. And build what you need so that you're not beholden to one of these companies. And I think we're finding we're just in the throes. This past year, we're realizing that that doesn't scale. So, I don't you think any type of new technologies that starts to to uh, get itself into the you know enterprise ecosystem and stuff like that. There's always a a proliferation of tools and software and ecosystem that surrounds it. And then, you know, over time, some of those guys uh, die off. Some of those guys are bought and merged. Some of those guys uh, are successful and, and, and take off. And you got to think about the skill set and the talent pool of the people, right? Um, that, that are built. So you get somebody that, you know, hey, I'm going to build a service mesh on, on SDIO. And then a guy who loves Linkerd comes in, right? It's uh, so so it's 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 interesting because the, uh, you know, back in the good old days of Cisco, you could have a guy with a Cisco certification and he knows everything about Cisco. Right. Um, And, you know, that was also a good way for the vendor to keep, you know, entrenched gear uh, in there. But, yeah, there's really not that for cloud native other than, you know, there's there's more popular things, but there's really not a defined way to do it. Right. Cloud Native Foundation has has a role to play at some of this stuff. I mean, obviously they're they you know they they have uh, a list of all the platforms that are available, all the solutions that are available in each and every category. But they need to. It's almost like SNEA. They need they need to have a decent definition of what these you know boundaries are between these tools and and then uh, you know some of the tools can start to be more or less successful in those spaces. I, I don't know. It's just a it seems to me that we're still in a in the in the beginning throes of this 
transformation of the, of the world of enterprise IT and IT in general to, to a more cloud native space. Yeah. Like most, yeah. I mean, like most things open source, you need for real success to happen. I mean, you need a benevolent dictator to, to kind of <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, know, set a direction, right? And, and guys, that's why, that's why cloud, cloud, native, cloud native isn't going to win. Like there, there's no winner and loser in this. There's not, uh, we're going to adopt some cloud native, quite a bit of it, awful lot of cloud native, but that deck alpha system that's on the manufacturing floor is not going to run Kubernetes. Uh, that's going to still be the OS that Linux OS that, I mean, that Unix OS running on that deck alpha system. The HPUX that I'm running is still going to be HPUX. The Windows systems are still going to be, be Windows, Windows and we end, we will have all the cloud native. And this is the realization Amazon has come to. Amazon has accepted the fact that they're not going to win all of the workloads. How do they get as much as possible? And it all will not be just one thing. Well, and that's also why Amazon created Snow and Outpost as well, right? That's why they created Snow and Outpost. You know, people are building. If you looked at uh, uh, Vulner Wargle's technical keynote, it is about Lambda in their message bus uh the whether you're putting stuff in applications and containers or whatever is just a uh, implementation detail you're not the control plane is not cloud the cncf cloud native control plane the control plane is the amazon control plane and so you're going to have so if everything is going even if i said everything is going to go cloud even if i agree with that premise it's going to be uh, well, which cloud is it? CNCF? Is it cloud? Is it uh, Amazon? Is it Azure? It's still going to be bifurcated in several different ways. And they're and they're all effectively built the same, but different, right? So, yep. yeah. and managed differently. Oh yeah, yeah. The whole cloud native thing is it's 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 like you know it's. <laughs> It's like seeing the early days of enterprise IT and stuff like that. It's just a, it's a proliferation of ecosystems, a proliferation of, of uh, I'll call it middleware. It's not really middleware anymore, you know, and, and all that stuff coming out of the woodwork. And, and you know, over time, it's, it's obviously it's going to be uh, it's going to start to become less, less, uh, less diverse and less, uh, less options there. But it's going to take time. You said something about you don't think packages are a way to go. I think, you know, you've got the challenge that the enterprise, I think enterprise likes packages. It's 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 the it's the startups that could care less about packages. They want to roll their own. They want to have the best of everything, et cetera, et cetera. But and I, and, I, and Ray, you're absolutely right. That's the conflict. The enterprises want OpenShift. Enterprises want tap. They want package yeah, software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, startups in the community driving these projects don't want the lock-in, that vendor lock-in. So that going into the new year, that's an interesting thing to watch because the money is starting to come into the communities. And I mean the money, I, I mean HPE, Dell, VMware, Cisco, these traditional enterprise IT shops are showing up at these conferences and they're bringing the suit and ties with them. They're bringing customers here to have these conversations. So, uh, move over, uh, hoodies, the, you know, the, 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 the guys, the guys and gals with the pantsuits are coming in. Mm. Mm. 
that could be the that that could be the key. <laughs> I'm thinking, is that why is that why IBM bought up OpenShift because they saw this coming? I don't know. Oh, it's been a it's an it's uh, IBM is an AR customer of mine, and it's been a definite accelerator for the rest of their business. Like the OpenShift numbers themselves, I'm IBM would disagree. I'm not impressed with the number of licensed OpenShift users. Uh, but the rest, but of the drags, I the guess, rest yeah. of the stuff that uh, that it brings to the rest of IBM has definitely been a huge boost. I don't think we've we've even touched the surface of cloud native, but I'm gonna have to move on to something else here. So the big news this year was VMware and it's uh, Broadcom uh, acquiring it and that sort of stuff. There was a lot of uh, I'll call it head uh, job transition occurring at VMware. You know, the whole world is trying to trying to get their heads wrapped around. What does this mean for my enterprise if VMware is purchased by Broadcom and things of that nature? You guys seen any of the, the pushback on that sort of stuff? Nothing but pushback. Uh, I, I haven't, well, this is not true. Within our analyst group of, of, of community, analysts, especially the financial analysts, love the deal. Like this is a great deal for both Broadcom investors and VMware investors. VMware has been a, a static stock for the past three to five years. Broadcom knows how to ring out profits out of the CAs and semantics of the world. So great deal on a financial side and financial advantage. Uh, analysts believe in it a hundred percent for the rest of us that focus on technology, we're kind of scratching our heads and thinking, hmm, how does this benefit customers? Even the industry at large, VMware is out here doing some brave things with TAP, Tanzu, Cross Cloud. uh, The whole hybrid cloud thing, you know, they're playing it big big time, yeah. They're playing big time, They, they have a bunch of stuff and, uh, uh, they have they they have a bunch of bets and, and stuff like blockchain. Their R and D they spend more uh, more money in a more a biggest big, bigger percentage in R and D uh, of their in their revenues than Broadcom does. So from like an industry, is this good for the industry at large? I'd have to say resoundingly no. This is you know no. I'm not excited about the deal at all. I don't see any advantage to the customers. And we'll get into kind of why I think there's a possibility why this deal won't go through. But I'd love to hear, you know, you two thoughts. You know, is this is this an exciting deal? Well, I can tell you that um, customers are not excited about it. Uh, the, uh, the current current uh, uh, VMware customers out there are, are not excited about the deal. I mean, probably one of the biggest concerns uh, that I heard was, as you said, you know, Broadcom's exceptional at, at basically, you know, ringing out profits out of a, a company. And they made it pretty clear that one of the ways they're going to do that is by charging more and uh, and and moving it to more of kind of a subscription style of, of uh, services revenue, um, which, you know, equates to to larger, you know, larger, you know, dollar amounts coming out of a customer's pocket to keep their their VMware installation going. I, I had a lot of customer conversations at VMworld uh, uh, this year, and that, that was probably the, one of the biggest concerns that I heard. Jason and I had a little talk at, at VMworld at, at yeah. your digs, actually. Yeah. We published that. We should link that uh, in the show notes. 
Yeah, we should probably do that. It's 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 interesting, you know. So when when you know Dell came along and purchased EMC, I had the same sort of question in my mind. You know, Dell had a fairly low percentage of their revenues in R and D, and EMC was was actually a pretty good spender of, of money for R and D and stuff like that. What you know, in the end, does the Dell EMC thing? Did that seem like it's working out for customers? I think so. It's 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 not the same company. It, that it was at one time, obviously, but it's a, it's a similar type of situation. It worked out. It, it it worked out for Dell customers. If I was an HPE customer, did I look at it and say, "Oh wow, I really love that VMware got purchased by Dell"? If I was a Lenovo or Cisco customer, uh, if I was not a Dell customer, did this deal work out for me? And this is why we're getting into why the EU is looking at this uh, deal more closely than they did the Dell VMware. You think that Dell had an unfair advantage when they had purchased VMware or EMC? Absolutely. There there were Dell VMware was a between Dell and VMware. If I can if I'm a Dell engineer and I can just pick up the phone to my VMware count, counterpart and say, hey, come out to Austin or Hop Hopkins and help me work through this problem I'm having automating VX Rail. Uh, you know, let's let's circle back to 2015, 2016 when uh, Dell did not have an HCI solution, not of their own. They partnered with Nutanix. They partnered with uh, with Jason, your previous company. They uh, there was great HCI competition. Fast forward to last year, and I did our VxRail review. The product is the most integrated product of all the HCI solutions with vSphere, bar none. Nutanix has some slick integration, but nothing compares to uh, uh, VxRail when it comes to integration with vSphere. There's a button when you're setting up VCF VMware Cloud Foundation that says, is this being deployed on a VX uh, on a VX rail system? There's special integration with that. That is, I, I don't, I don't know if you tell me, is that a fair or unfair advantage over HPE, DHCI, and well, yeah, the other and solutions VX, on the market? Uh, you know, the, the other side of this is that VX rail was very popular and very successful. And you know, the, the, the engineering dollars in R&D are going to go to that sort of solution first, quite frankly. So yes and no, it's sort of a, you know, it's a sort of a combination of things to some extent. And then and, and now Nutanix is up for sale. Yeah. Because Nutanix would, would Nutanix be up for sale if VxRail didn't exist? Well, I think Nutanix has its own problems. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's harder. It's been harder to gain adoption in the enterprise. It's been harder to gain adoption in some of the spaces. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of a, a niche kind of product, as far as I can tell. Most of the people who, that use Nutanix seem to like it, but it's just not, it never got the traction that VMware Yeah, did. did it not get traction? And this is the question that the EU is asking. Did it not get traction because it's a niche product? VxRail and Nutanix, it's the same product. They compete when, uh, when, when you're talking sales and what sales teams are in. It's the Nutanix sales team and it's the VM Dell sales team competing against the Nutanix sales team. They are yeah. direct competitive uh, solutions. Right. So fast forward to the Broadcom deal. The EU and other regulators, and it's not just the EU looking at the deal, 
the EU can take a look at it and say, do we want another Dell VMware vertical stack? Do we want this inorganic stack to come together? Broadcom doesn't sell CPUs. It doesn't sell HCI solutions today, right? I mean, do they? Yeah, but they sell DPUs and SmartNICs. Yeah. And you know who else sells DPUs and SmartNICs? Intel, NVIDIA, and AMD. If, if If you're Broadcom, are you just going to open up and say VMware equally uh, spend R&D dollars with the other companies? And even if you're the other companies, are you going to spend money with, uh, with oh, oh, uh, to uh, uh, further uh, Broadcom's knowledge of what you're doing? This isn't like the days of EMC when EMC was a storage company that owned VMware and, and all the x86 guys and, and server guys and VMware was the, the, the neutral player in the mix. VMware will not be neutral when it comes to DPUs and, and SmartNICs. And that's the future. Like we, we literally, we've literally had podcasts where DPUs and, and SmartNICs and all of that is the future innovation of the data center and the hypervisor. It is the chase to be the nitro of the private cloud. And Broadcom will own that company and they will have an unfair fair advantage just like Dale did. Now, the question is, is that anti-competitive or not? That, I, I think the EU, I think, is leaning towards that's anti-competitive. It'd be interesting to see this deal unwind like that. <laughs> I don't know what it would mean, quite frankly. It's you know the Nutanix thing is interesting, but it's it's sort of it's sort of ancillary to this whole discussion. I mean, you know, is it important that a company's acquisition be good for the customer, or is it good for the the market, or is it good for the investors? I mean, obviously the investors stay out here, right? In the EU, that's the that's the funny thing about the EU. The EU, the acquisition has to be good for the customer. And the US, it just has to be not anti-competitive. Right. So uh, it is a different question. And this is why I think the biggest challenge for the Dell Brock, meaning for the Broadcom VMware deal, is how the EU looks at competition differently than how the US looks at competition. Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait till the new year and see how this all plays out. Might be some litigation here, <laughs> uh, but that's a different. Yeah, discussion. I don't think I, the the funny thing is that I don't think there's that. While in the U.S., they can uh, the Microsoft and Activision thing is getting challenged in court. Once the EU makes a decision, I don't think there's a mechanism to challenge it. It's kind of a final thing. Interesting. Yeah, the, the EU they don't have a setup like we do here in the U.S. where you can go and challenge. Uh, the EU is, it's not that the EU is suing the Broadcom and VMware. The EU just says no, and yeah, the answer is yeah. no. All right, gents. Well, I think we covered enough enough ground. We could probably do this for another hour or so with a couple more topics, but uh, <laughs> I think this is good. Uh, so, Keith and Jason, any last uh, items you'd like to discuss before we leave? No, it's been a full year. Uh, we, you know, we just touched briefly on SuperCloud and this whole idea. I don't particularly like the term. I don't like the label, but I do like the I do like the concept that we need a better a better definition for this thing that's happening in the enterprise and in uh, new shops. That's not that's not multi cloud. It's, it's something other than that. Super cloud may be a bad label, but it's a great concept to define what it is that's happening more than just having multiple clouds. 
Yeah. Jason? I tell you that it is good that the industry shows are back. It was great seeing you guys in person. I think that's it. That's it for now. Bye, Keith. Bye, Jason. Bye, Ray. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out.